Welcome, fellow crimatics, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Welcome back, addicts. This week, we are taking a little road trip and talking about a crazy killing spree. We got our raspberry mochas in hand, and we are taking it out to KCMO to start us off. This week, we are going to be shouting out Q, Ayana P, and Jaren C. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated, so we want to thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for the support that you guys have been giving us with our podcast, and we love you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go ahead and donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crimatics Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimaticsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you will find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find our delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. In late August 1994, Dennis Skillicorn, Alan Nicklassen, and Tim DeGraffenreid headed east from Kansas City, Missouri to obtain illegal drugs in a 1983 Chevrolet Caprice. So I'm just going to let y'all know right now that these three guys are the Three Stooges, I swear. So that's what I'm going to be referring to them as. <laughs> uh, the Three Stooges, they were on this mission, apparently, for the drugs. And on August 23rd, 1994, during their return trip to Kansas City, the Caprice broke down 22 miles east of the Kingdom City exit on I-70. Sergeant Ahern and Trooper Morrison of the Missouri State Highway Patrol came upon the disabled vehicle helped push the car to the side of the road, and left them when further assistance was declined. The troopers last saw the trio as they walked toward a payphone. By the next morning, August 24th, 1994, the Three Stooges and their car had made it 17 miles further west. That's how far they progressed in the night. So near Kingdom City, the Caprice broke down again, in an effort to find jumper cables, the three approached a Missouri Highway and Transportation Department employee working in the median of the interstate. He could not assist them, though. So they spotted a home belonging to a complete stranger to them, a man by the name of Merlin Smith. The Three Stooges then decided to burglarize Mr. Smith and made off with four guns, ammunition, a skinning knife, money, a pillowcase, some change, and a cracker box. <laughs> That's very important. So they stashed most of the stolen property in some nearby bushes, and then they called for a tow truck to come and get their car. The car was towed to Roger Redmond's garage, and they did pay for the tow. And then the mechanic at the garage found major problems with the car, but was able to restart it. Unfortunately, he was unable to repair it entirely because, number one, that probably would have cost them way too much money. And number two, they, he didn't have the part, wasn't able to do it right that moment. So the men paid the mechanic with a cracker box full of change and left in the vehicle that he had restarted for them. The same Caprice. So the Three Stooges decided to try to make it back to Kansas City in their vehicle that obviously is not running well. First, though, they had to go back towards Mr. Smith's house to recover the stolen goods that they had previously hidden in the bushes near his home. However, the car didn't even make it that far, 
and it broke down again. And this time that was on the South Outer Road east of Kingdom City. So between 4 and 5 o'clock p.m., Richard Drummond saw the stranded Stooges and he stopped to offer to take them to a phone. They accepted Drummond's offer. Drummond drove a white 1994 Dodge Intrepid that belonged to AT&T, who was his employer. Niglassen told Drummond to back up the Intrepid to the Caprice. Then the three Stooges loaded the stolen property from Mr. Smith's home into the trunk of Drummond's car, and they kept a 22 caliber handgun and a shotgun with them when they got into Drummond's car. Nick Lassen and Skillicorn sat in the back seat while Dave Griffin-Reed sat in the front passenger seat. When Drummond took his place in the driver's seat, Nick Lassen pulled the pistol to the back of Drummond's head and said, quote, you're going to take us where we want to go, end quote. They wanted to head back towards Kansas City, so that's where they directed Drummond to drive. Along the way, they decided that they were going to have to kill Drummond. East of Higginsville, they told Drummond to take the Highway T exit. Four miles north of the interstate, they turned onto Country Road 202. Finding a secluded area, Niglassen ordered Drummond to stop the car. Skillicorn took Drummond's wallet, and Niglassen walked Drummond into the woods, ordered Drummond to kneel, told him to say his prayers, and shot him in the head twice. Drummond's badly decomposed body was found and identified eight days later. Skillicorn later acknowledged hearing two shots from the woods and that Nick Lassen returned having, quote, already done what he had to do, end quote. The Three Stooges then continued west on I-70 in Drummond's car. They stopped at the home of a friend, Joe Snell. This was in Blue Springs, Missouri. A woman by the name of Kelly McEntee came to Mr. Snell's house looking for De Graffenried because they had been dating. She knocked on the door and Nick Lassen answered, then came outside and said, quote, don't nobody touch my car, referring to Drummond's car. With that, Nick Lassen went to the trunk of the Intrepid and removed a shotgun to assist him in assuring those watching that he did not want them to touch the car. He put the shotgun to Kelly's head and announced that he would kill her. He did not kill her, apparently satisfied that he had made his point after he hit her in the face. Sometime later, the three stooges left Mr. Snell's house and went to another friend's house by the name of Annie Wyatt. Niglassen told Annie that he had killed someone in the woods and described the murder. After a planning session at a local restaurant, Nick Lassen and Skillicorn decided to drive to Arizona, but De Graffenried stayed behind. On this journey, since they were freaking terrible drivers, as it turns out, they got Drummond's vehicle stuck in the sand while they were in Arizona. So now they're on foot, and they approach the home of Joseph and Charlene Babcock. Nick Lassen killed Joseph Babcock, who was 47 at the time, after the man had driven them back to their vehicle. Charlene Babcock, who was 38 at the time, was killed at the couple's home. When Arizona authorities located the stuck vehicle, it contained a letter Nick Lassen had written and some of Richard Drummond's and Melvin Smith's property. Authorities also found shell casings near the car that matched those recovered at the Smith burglary scene and the Drummond murder scene. De Graffenried by then had been arrested and led police to Drummond's body. Skillicorn and Nick Lassen were caught on October 5th, 1994, in the San Diego, California area, this being about six weeks after Drummond's death. They were hitchhiking at the time they were arrested. After the men's capture, Skillicorn told investigators that Nick Lassen had killed another woman while they were on the lam in Mexico. But Skillicorn later admitted he had made it up when he was on drugs. So there's not a whole lot of information out there on these men and their upbringings and childhoods, but here's what we could find about them. All three of them are from Missouri, born and raised. Skillicorn was a white male born on November 21st, 1959, and his criminal history started as a young boy with mostly petty thefts and robberies. 
1979, Scalicorn and two other men burglarized a Kansas City home. One of his co-defendants used a shotgun to kill an 81-year-old man residing in the home. Skillicorn, at 20 years old, was convicted of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 35 years in prison. He was paroled in 1992 after serving over 13 years. He was on parole for life at the time of the killing spree in 1994. We are jumping a little bit ahead on this one, but while he was in prison, Skillicorn met Paula Barr, who was a reporter for the Kansas City Star, and she covered his trial as a crime reporter. She no longer works for the Star, but they were married in 1997 at the Potosi prison where Skillicorn was housed. Alan Nicklassen was a white male born on July 25, 1972, and grew up in a fatherless home. His mother was a mentally ill stripper who brought home an assortment of men, many of whom abused her son. One of these men burned Nicklassen as a child and left a scar. Nicklassen later recalled the trauma of his childhood, including eating Alpo dog food for dinner and watching his mother shoot up heroin. He even recalled a time when she made him fight a Doberman for money. Then there was the constant torrent of abuse from his mother's male friends. Nicklassen suffered from bipolar disorder and lived on and off in boys' homes for his petty crimes and institutions for his mental illness. Skillicorn's lawyer, Jenny Merrigan, described Nick Lassen as, quote, fascinating and, quote, truly mentally ill. Attorney Merrigan said that at age four, Nick Lassen stabbed a man he saw raping his mother who worked as a prostitute and kept Nick Lassen in a closet while meeting Johns. At age nine, he attacked his stepfather who pressed charges. Nicklassen moved from juvenile incarceration to regular prison, and at his last parole hearing, he begged the board not to let him out. The prison shrink seconded this, but he was granted parole anyway, and it was soon after that he met Skillicorn at the Salvation Army in Kansas City. This was shortly after Skillicorn was released from his first stint in prison. By his 20s, Nicklassen was homeless and a drug addict. De Griffin Reed is a white male born on June 16, 1977, and according to his Facebook page, he considers Blue Springs, Missouri his hometown and is currently attending the University of Missouri in Kansas City and studying computer science since June 7, 2021. This is a little foreshadowing, but that seems like it would be difficult after spending so long behind bars because the world doesn't stop spinning and developing while you're inside. But maybe he's a natural and good at technology. The rest of his account and information is private, though. Okay, so let's get back to getting into the trial. So we all know that court proceedings can be lengthy, and when parties are waiting on testing and witnesses and investigations and even negotiations, trial can and will be continued until all parties are prepared to move forward with that trial. Well, a year and a half after his arrest on April 22nd, 1996, a jury trial began for Nick Lassen. By May 2nd, 1996, the jury returned a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. Then, moving on into the sentencing phase, on May 4th, the Missouri jury returned with a death sentence as punishment for Nick Lassen's first-degree murder conviction two days prior. The jury found four aggravating circumstances supporting imposition of capital punishment. One, whether the defendant was convicted of assault in the second degree on April 9, 1990 in the Circuit Court of Jackson County, Missouri. Two, whether the defendant was convicted of offering to commit violence to an officer on March 2, 1993 in the Circuit Court of Randolph County, Missouri. Three, whether the murder of Richard Drummond was committed while the defendant was engaged in the perpetration of kidnapping or while the defendant was knowingly aiding Dennis Gillicorn and or Timothy Day Griffin Reed in the perpetration of kidnapping. And four, whether the murder of Richard Drummond was committed while the defendant was engaged in the perpetration of robbery. On June 28, 1996, the Lafayette County Circuit Court sentenced Nick Lassen to death for first-degree murder. 
So this process was very similar for Skillicorn, but his dates are slightly different. So the trial process began for him on January 22nd, 1996. And by February 2nd, a jury returned a guilty verdict of first degree murder with a sentence recommendation of death. On March 3rd, 1996, Judge Ravenhill ordered the imposition of the death sentence recommended by the jury. Both Nick Lassen and Skillicorn were sentenced to life in prison for the Arizona killings of Mr. and Mrs. Babcock, and also sentenced to death in Missouri for Mr. Drummond's death. Day Griffin Reed, who was 17 when the crime took place, pleaded guilty and served time for second-degree murder and did not receive a death sentence. Between Skillicorn and Nick Lassen, many appeals were filed. So on April 29, 1997, the Missouri Supreme Court affirmed the judgment of conviction and sentence. On August 25, 1997, Skillicorn filed a motion seeking relief that was amended on November 24, 1998, and was later denied by the Circuit Court of Lafayette County on June 12, 1999. A year later, almost to the day, the Missouri Supreme Court affirmed the denial of post-conviction relief motion. On July 30, 2001, Skillicorn filed a federal habeas corpus petition in the United States District Court for the Western District of Missouri. And just a reminder to our addicts, habeas corpus is if you file a petition with the court because you want to be brought back before the judge where reasons for your arrest and detention must be shown. Okay, keep going, Casey. So on March 31st, 2005, the United States District Court for the Western District of Missouri denied the petition. And on February 6th, 2007, the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit affirmed the denial of habeas corpus relief. On July 8, 1997, Niglassen filed a notice of appeal and on February 24th, 1998, the Missouri Supreme Court affirmed Nick Lassen's conviction and sentence. On June 22, 1998, Nick Lassen filed a motion for post-conviction relief in the Lafayette County Circuit Court, and on November 30th of that same year, the United States Supreme Court denied a certiorari review of the direct appeal. Okay, so I'm going to interrupt you for a second, and I just want to remind our addicts that certiorari is when you send a request for a higher court to review your case. Oh, yes. Good reminder. Thank you. Okay, so we still have a little bit more going on for Nick Lassen. So on April 15th, 2002, the circuit court denied post-conviction relief. A year later, to the day, the Missouri Supreme Court affirmed the denial of the relief. So it's being denied, someone else is looking at it, and they're confirming that it's denied on all of these instances. So if it sounds like we're repeating ourselves, it's because we are. So on September 20th, 2004, Nick Lassen filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the United States District Court for the Western District of Missouri. On April 26th, 2005, the District Court denied the petition for writ of habeas corpus in an unpublished order, and this was affirmed by the Court of Appeals on June 21st, 2007. On April 21st of 2008, the United States Supreme Court denied certiorari review. So obviously, there were many last-minute motions and appeals that were filed in trying to request Governor Nixon to grant clemency for both convicts. When it got to the end, you know, of course, that's when everything kind of goes up in flames and tons of appeals and motions and writs and everything like that gets filed. So there were plenty at that time. I mean, there were even motions filed on Nick Lassen's behalf requesting for him to be released early, like not only off death row, but like just to straight up be released to the street. Like they were grasping. But of course, all motions, appeals and requests were denied. After more than three years of wrangling over how Missouri's executioner should deliver the lethal injection and who is qualified to do it, Missouri geared up for the death penalty again in 2009. With questions about the state's method of capital punishment settled, the debate then shifted to whether the first man in line should be spared. With appeals running out, Skillicorn's last hope may be Governor Jay Nixon, who holds the power to convert a death sentence to life in prison. In the interview at the prison, Skillicorn insisted that he did not kill Drummond. He said that his death would cause suffering for his wife and that society would benefit from letting him live. Many agreed, actually. Supporters and even a prominent legislator asked Governor Nixon to spare his life. 
some prison workers and volunteers even planned a demonstration for Governor Nixon. They said there is substantial doubt that Skillicorn was responsible for the murder and that he transformed into a force for good. One prison guard called him a, quote, calming influence. A chaplain said Skillicorn made prison safer and said that taking his life would be counterproductive. However, there was a hang-up because Skillicorn being implicated in a total of four murders over time, leading others to insist his later good deeds don't matter. Skillicorn's lawyer argued unsuccessfully in federal court that Governor Nixon, as the former Missouri Attorney General, could be biased against clemency. A spokesman for the governor said he would be thorough and fair. State Representative Bob Nance said Skillicorn is a career killer and represents the very reason Missouri has the death penalty. Quote, he may or may not have pulled the trigger, but he certainly could have stopped what was happening. It is very easy to repent after we're caught, end quote, Nance said in an interview. State Representative Bill Deaknan asked that the death penalty be put on hold for two years while a commission studies whether it is administered fairly and properly. That measure failed 95 to 64. Skillicorn said that he had no idea Nick Lassen was going to kill Drummond and said Nick Lassen told him that he had no idea he was going to kill him until the moment he did. Quote, I victimized Mr. Drummond in a cruel, heartless way, Skillicorn said. Do I deserve to be punished for that? Yes, I do, but not with his own death. We shouldn't kill people to show people that killing is wrong. Skillicorn admitted he had been a drug addict and thief, but insisted he was never a direct participant in any of the slangs. He said, quote, I would never kill anybody. Governor Nixon denied a clemency request earlier in the evening after receiving a final briefing from his counsel. Quote, after careful deliberation, I have denied this petition, Nixon said in a written statement. After more than a decade of legal challenges, both the conviction and the death sentence of Dennis Skillicorn have held up under extensive judicial review by the state and federal courts, end quote. On his last day, May 20th, 2009, Skillicorn said he did not want his wife to be there but she told him she didn't want him to be alone, so he visited with her until 7 p.m. Skillicorn then dined alone in his cell, devouring a double bacon cheeseburger and potato chips that was delivered from the Crossroads restaurant and lounge near the prison. He did not have anything for dessert, and after his final meal, he met up with spiritual advisors at 11. Skillicorn was executed by lethal injection in Missouri on May 20, 2009 at 1230 a.m. His final words were, quote, The sorrow, despair, and regrets of my life would most certainly have consumed me if not for the grace and mercy of a loving and living God who saved me, end quote. Skillicorn wrote in a lengthy final statement read to reporters by Department of Corrections spokesman, Jacqueline Lapine. Quote, as a husband, I have been overjoyed to know the love of a woman unlike any I have ever known. She shall forever be my soulmate and I hers. Skillicorn apologized to the family of the victim, Richard Drummond, saying that, quote, for the last 15 years, I've lived with the remorse of my actions, end quote. Skillicorn ran one program to help strengthen prisoners' families and another to care for sick and dying inmates. He was also the editor of Compassion Magazine, which is sent to death row inmates and about 4,500 other readers. Money from subscriptions has funded $34,000 in scholarships for children who have lost parents to violent crimes. Skillicorn created and edited a book aimed at helping troubled youth make good choices and change their lives. The book is provided free to juvenile detention centers across the country. Mr. Skillicorn was the founder of 4-H Life at Potosi Correctional Center, a family-strengthening program that fosters positive interaction between children and their incarcerated parents. He also chaired the prison's hospice program that cares for terminally ill offenders. 
Skillet Corn was a full-time employee of Set Free Ministries that minister to thousands of prisoners in Missouri and Illinois, helping offenders find the healing power of God's love. Lastly, he also began an annual charity carnival at the prison, proceeds of which go to charitable community organizations. Nick Lassen's execution was originally scheduled, but an appeals court panel granted a stay of execution two days prior, citing concerns about his counsel at trial and sentencing in 1996. When the full appeals court refused to take up the case the day before, Missouri Attorney General Chris Coster appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. It did not return its 5-4 to decision to vacate the state until two days later on Wednesday, December 12, 2013 at 10.07 p.m. Governor Jay Nixon refused to grant clemency. Missouri previously used a three-drug method for executions but changed protocols after drug makers stopped selling the lethal drugs to prisons and correction departments. They now use the drug pentobarbital in Missouri executions. Nick Lassen, who was 41, was pronounced dead at 10.52 p.m. Wednesday, December 12, 2013, eight minutes after the process began. His eyes remained closed throughout, and he showed little reaction to the drug, only briefly breathing heavy for about two minutes into the process. He offered no final words. Missouri Department of Public Safety spokesman Mike O'Connell said Nick Lassen prayed briefly with the prison chaplain about 20 minutes before the execution. No one from his family or the victim's family attended. Nick Lassen had pizza, gummy bears, M&Ms, and orange juice the day prior at about 4 p.m. He ate regular prison meals on the day of his execution. Governor Jay Nixon issued his statement following the execution. Quote, Richard Drummond's act of kindness in stopping to help the occupants of a broken down car on Interstate 70 in 1994 was repaid with an act of brutal and callous violence. For taking the life of this good Samaritan, both Alan Nick Lassen and Dennis Skillcorn were sentenced to die by Missouri juries, decisions that were upheld by the courts. Tonight, the second of these punishments was carried out with the execution of Alan Nick Lassen. I ask that Missourians remember Richard Drummond at this time and keep his family in your thoughts and prayers, end quote. Attorney General Chris Coster, after announcing that the U.S. Supreme Court had vacated the stay of Nick Lassen's execution, issued this statement. Quote, the highest court in the nation has removed the last restriction to carrying out the lawfully imposed punishment of Alan Nick Lassen, Coster said. Quote, while the sentence carried out this evening cannot lessen the loss of Mr. Drummond's family, it nonetheless will give them the knowledge that justice has been done. My thoughts and prayers tonight are with the family and friends of Mr. Drummond, end quote. Nick Lassen declined interviews in the days leading up to his execution, but had conducted an interview in 2009 with the Associated Press. In the 2009 interview, Nick Lassen recalled how he left the other two behind and walked Drummond to a wooded area. He said he had intended to tie him up to buy time for the trio to get away. However, he changed his mind, ordered Drummond to kneel and cross his legs, then he shot him twice in the head. Quote, I'm laughing, pacing. I started losing it. I wouldn't want this out, but I felt a euphoria. I finally got back for all the beatings I took as a child. End quote. Nick Lassen was the 1,358th murderer executed in the United States since 1976 and the 70th murder executed in Missouri since 1976. He was also the 38th murderer executed in the United States just in 2013 alone, and the second murderer executed in Missouri in 2013. So Nick Lassen told attorney Merrigan that he can't function in society. So she had asked him to write a statement to be included in Skillicorn's clemency petition. So this is the statement that I'm going to read to you that Nick Lassen wrote instead of an article. I'm writing this affidavit on behalf of my co-defendant, Dennis Skillicorn. I have maintained from the day of my arrest, October 5th, 1994, that Dennis had absolutely no knowledge that I would murder Mr. Richard Drummond. I told Lieutenant Lent and FBI agent Arthur McGomber this several times during our interview in San Diego, California. Lieutenant Lent actually wrote it down as part of his interview notes, there were no cameras or tapes of the interview. They wrote down my statement 
They would not allow me to read it, nor correct any mistakes, just simply sign it. I wrote to Dennis and stated I would be more than willing to come and testify at his trial. I would have testified to the fact that Dennis had no knowledge that I was going to murder Mr. Drummond. The judge at Dennis's trial would not let my statement in because he said it was unreliable, which never made sense to me because Prosecutor Bellamy used that same statement in my trial. Prosecutor Bellamy lied at Dennis's trial to secure a conviction, which thus resulted in the death penalty. I wanted to testify at Dennis Gillicorn's trial and still do. At Dennis's trial, Bellamy made it seem like Dennis was the leader and at my trial, he made it seem like I was. So which is it? My attorneys would not let me testify because they said I was too mentally unstable and volatile. Looking back, I cannot blame them. I was extremely violent and self-destructive until I was placed on medication. I wasn't even allowed to testify at my own trial because of this, which should tell you how serious it was. I wanted to testify at Dennis's trial and still do. I would be very upset if Dennis were executed. Dennis did absolutely nothing. He was about a half a mile away when it happened. Initially, my plan was to go to St. Louis and get three ounces of meth fronted, sell the product so we could afford to get an apartment with a couple of months advance and find secure jobs. But on the way to St. Louis, the car broke down. The radiator hose clamp broke off. While I was trying to repair the car, I had to listen to Tim whine about everything. I guess it was his dad's car. He didn't tell his dad he was going to take it, which really pissed me off. I ended up pushing the car for at least a mile. We came to an on-ramp, and I was trying to push the car up the on-ramp by myself because Dennis and Tim were too weak to help. The next day, while I was again trying to repair the car, a station wagon offered to help. I was so angry that I got extremely aggressive with the guy, and he drove off. Dennis flagged down another car. I got into the back seat, and I felt the outline of my holster in the small of my back. I had forgotten it was there. I had a moment when I actually thought this guy was out to get me. It sort of dawned on me and I realized, quote, I've got to get this guy before he gets me, end quote. In prison, everyone is an enemy until proven otherwise. I pulled my weapon and put it to Mr. Drummond's head. Dennis panicked and said, hey, man, what are you doing? I told Dennis, shut your mouth. Drummond, who was sitting in the front seat, looked at me in the rear view mirror and tried to calm me down. I told Tim to rip out the cell phone and throw it out the window. I told him about the tracking device in it and that they could use it to find us. Dennis wasn't aware of shit like that. I don't recall Dennis saying two words to Drummond. I told Drummond to pull over and get out. I had every intention of tying him to a tree. I told Dennis and Tim to stay in the car. Dennis tried to keep me calm. I told them I was going to tie him up and not to worry. I told them that this would give us time to get back to Blue Springs before Drummond could call the cops. Dennis would have no reason to doubt me. In reality, I was going to take Dennis back to Salvation Army. I walked Drummond into the field alone, away from Dennis. I allowed Drummond to get ahead of me three times. He turned and waited each time, which was shocking to me. Drummond didn't try to escape or defend himself. If someone had given me three chances, I would have escaped or defended myself. I was angry at myself long before I met Drummond. I was questioning why I couldn't have a nice car, home, wife, job, etc. I worked 24 hours sometimes and wanted to know why I worked so hard for nothing. I was very upset with Drummond for being weak, and I was upset at myself for forgetting the rope. So I took all of my pent-up anger out on him. A lifetime of anger. When I got back to the car, Dennis asked me if I had tied him up. I said, no, I shot him. The whole situation escalated. Truth be told, I escalate without medication. Dennis wasn't aware of any of this. He didn't know I needed the medication. Dennis was scared to death that if he didn't go along, I'd kill him. And at the time, I just might have. Dennis is the least intimidating person in the history of prison. He smiles too much. I'm not sure why we ever hung out. We both got high, but we acted very differently from one another when we did. 
He'd get happier when he was high or drunk and I'd get violent way over the norm. He said, you don't got to get violent all the time. I'd end up dragging him in anyways. Dennis stayed with me out of fear of what I'd do if he left. I threatened him on several occasions. I even pointed a gun at him once. Sometimes I wish I shot Dennis so he wouldn't have to go through this. Dennis is not violent in any regard. It saddens me that he got caught up in my mess. If it wasn't for Dennis, I honestly believe that more people would have been harmed. Just because he was present doesn't mean he did anything or willingly partook in what I did. It doesn't mean he should get the death penalty. I have owned up to it all since the beginning. Dennis got caught up with me because of prison mentality and he got caught up in my quest for revenge and suicide. Please don't let Dennis's blood be on my hands too. I've had enough pain to deal with as it is. I can't deal with another innocent death. I ruined Dennis's life. Signed the 24th day of July, 2008. There's a couple things that I notice when you read that, that I don't know if they stick out to you, but they did to me. So number one, he was saying like that he told them, oh, I'm going to go tie them up to a tree, but nobody recognized that he didn't bring the rope with him. Like nobody thought that was important. What did they think? I mean, Drummond was never in any way, shape or form tied up at all. Like his arms, you know, like I picture them walking back and he's you know, pointing a gun at them and like kind of pushing him forward and that kind of stuff because his hands are tied behind his back and stuff. No, like his hand, he was never bound. Nothing. And then another thing that kind of caught my eye is he said when he got back that Skillicorn asked if he had tied him up, but Skillicorn had actually admitted later that he heard the gunshots. And he knew that he had killed Drummond. Right. I get what you're saying. My guess is he probably heard those shots. And then when he came back, he was like, kind of freaked out. So he's like, hey, did you tie him up? And then he admitted, like, he was probably hoping, like, oh, I hope that's not what I heard. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's either that there was, like, you know, a different reason for him asking that or that didn't happen and uh nick lassen's version of the story might be slightly skewed yeah because i know skillicorn told the police that like immediately you know when he was arrested he had said yeah i heard the shots but i didn't fire it you know right well and then if you think about it um Nick Lassen then he didn't know that he skillicorn heard those shots though so he's probably was just saying what he did know which was what he asked him like did you did you tie him up and then he's like nah nah bro shot him a couple times yeah that's true I just noticed those two things like they stuck out at me um throughout this whole case I was like so they let him walk this man with a gun off the road far enough that they couldn't see him and then when he's telling them like oh I'm just gonna tie him up to give us some time to get away, like none of them were like, Oh, hey, here's some rope. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, none of them thought that part was important when you go to tie somebody up. You need the materials, the those are essential, right? Including rope. That would be number one. So I thought that was kind of interesting on this case. So the fact that he kind of addressed that a little bit and that like he said I was mad at myself because I forgot the rope. I understand, you know, it's a heated situation, your adrenaline's running crazy. And like he said, like, he's going through all of this release of, you know, like, he's the one in control now and the one in power. And he had a very aggressive personality and that kind of stuff. But that doesn't answer my question of, well, why didn't Skillicorn or Dave Reed say something about the rope. You know what I mean? Like I can understand forgetting it because your head's fucking spinning and you're about to kill somebody and you know that, but like, what about the other two? You know? Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. They probably were just so freaked out in my head. He's like the ringleader. And so he's like, just stay here. And they're like, okay, I'm not going to get out. Not even going to look sort of thing, yeah. but I don't know. I mean, it's a good point. 
I'm telling you, the three fucking stooges. They broke down two vehicles. They paid somebody with a cracker box full of coins. They go to, quote, tie somebody up. Don't have any rope. It's like, how dumb can you possibly be? You travel all the way from Missouri to Arizona. Then you're on the lam. There's rumor that you killed some lady in Mexico. Like, anything else? Like, y'all good? (laughs) I mean, you gotta be the dumbest criminals in history. Yeah, they're a whole mess. I don't know. (laughs) And actually, in addition to the slayings in Missouri and Arizona, they were also suspected of not only the, like, it was just a lady in Mexico. Like, there was never a name, a report. Like, nothing ever was affiliated with that. That was just, that came from Skillicorn. Oh, uh... Nick Lassen killed somebody else in in Mexico, but then was like, oh, I was high. I made that up. So we don't know if that's true or not, but that did come out. But on top of those things, they were suspected to be involved in a truck driver's abduction and murder. This was on August 31st of 1994 in Battle Mountain, Nevada at a truck stop. So this was a man by the name of Paul J. Hines. He was 31 years old at the time, and his body was found the following day on September 1st, about 120 miles east of Elko, Nevada, near I-80. Witnesses reported seeing a vehicle similar to the 1989 Dodge Ram Charger stolen from the Babcocks that they had murdered in Arizona. And this... Charger was reportedly fleeing the area where Heinz's body was found. So we don't know if they were responsible for this. They were never linked to the murder, but the information was definitely portrayed to the public while they were wanted and while authorities were attempting to locate them. So they definitely got their hands in a few different pots. And honestly, once you show that you're capable of something like that, you're going to be suspected for as many possible things as they can link you to, you know? Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I have two other quick points that I found before we jump into our discussion questions. So one was that DeGraff and Reed, just to kind of put a bow on him, he did end up making parole because he was sentenced to life in prison, but he did end up making parole. And he's currently on life parole in Missouri, And like we had said, he does have a Facebook page. It's private, but you can see just like a few little pieces, you know, and I always am skeptical of social media. Like it says he went to college. Well, did he also just decide to stop using his Facebook at right around that time? And maybe he's not, you know, we don't know if it was updated anytime recently or whatever, but, um, you know, that's the last update that we have on him. And also Vicki Green, who was a cook at the Crossroads, said her restaurant has been selected several times by prison officials when ordering up last suppers for its doomed inmates. <laughs> she said, quote, I think it's because we got the best food in the county. We were honored to be the place they chose. So I thought that was kind of like a little fun fact. Put a little bit of love up in there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Crossroads, what you got? <laughs> Give me some of that. I mean, honestly, the food doesn't have to be very good. Like Nick Lassen was eating M&Ms and gummy bears. Like I'm cool with that too. (laughs) And if you're in prison, man, that's gourmet food right there. (laughs) I know. Anything's better than what they got serving up, I'm sure. (laughs) That's right. So Crossroads, you got it. Also McDonald's, you got it. (laughs) Anything besides what they're eating, you got it. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Okay, so I just have three discussion questions for you today. And I want to make sure to put a point on here of that this is not going to get into a political discussion. It's just very much regarding this particular case. So regardless of your belief on the death penalty, for this particular case and in these particular circumstances, should Skillicorn have been executed? I honestly don't believe so. Okay. I there I mean okay. I think that they said it best when they said that um it would be counterproductive to execute him because of all of the good that he was doing and the lives he was helping, I guess you could say. Um he was he was 
doing a lot of positive things while he was incarcerated. And I feel like someone like that, and especially someone that's like head of these charities and like founded charities while he was in prison and stuff. Like, I just feel like that is a sign that either, you know, he was innocent to begin with, or he was reformed or like whatever it might be. He was doing good and he was doing good for not just himself. He was doing good for other people. And I just don't feel like he should have been executed. Yeah. I actually do agree with you that he shouldn't have been. Um, I do understand that he was involved in four murders throughout his life, at least, (laughs) we know of. Maybe some in Mexico, maybe some in Nevada. We don't know. But there was no proof that he had ever been the one to pull the trigger. And I know that he could have stopped it, but how many cases have we talked about that include people who could have prevented a crime or, you know, were co-defendants that didn't really take part in it or took part in this part, not that part or something like that. And they most certainly could have made a different decision, probably most definitely deserve to spend some time in prison, maybe life, whatever. In this particular case, I believe that's where he belongs, but it's different from the other cases that we've covered and some cases that we've researched in that they were not being executed for their lack of involvement. You know what I mean? And I do understand the governor's decision. And honestly, if I were in his shoes, I probably would have made the same decision and being like, okay, well, this has been upheld by the courts and the higher courts and the highest court in the land, you know, this, I get it. So if I were him and I were in that position and, you know, you are in an elected position, I understand the decision he made, but from the outside looking in and this many years later and from what we know now and that kind of stuff and like reading even Nick Lassen's affidavit and all that kind of stuff, I just feel like since he didn't pull the trigger in any of those murders, he obviously finds himself in trouble a lot and was a drug addict and was not necessarily a pro-social person in society prior to being locked up. And then how someone had said, you know, yeah, we're all reformed once we get caught, you know, and we're all remorseful and we're, you know, it's, oh, I'm, I'm this great person now. And I understand that not everybody is like that and that that can definitely be a play. But I feel like in this case, he kind of had proven himself, you know, based on all that charity work and the books he wrote and the ministries he was a part of and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It just seems like life in prison would have been the better result without the possibility of parole. I'm fine with that. But uh, I don't know. It doesn't feel right to me to put him to death when he didn't actually kill anybody, you know? Or at least they couldn't prove it. Yeah, I feel like um, just because he's like a pushover doesn't mean he should get like, like executed, right. you know? Because right. right. not everybody can be the ringleader. You got to have groupies. You got to have followers. And that's kind of what he was, it seems like. So, right. mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I just don't feel like, I don't know. I just don't feel like he was responsible enough, mm-hmm. you know? Obviously, Mm -hmm. he should be in trouble because he was there and like Mm -hmm. four times. That's a lot, you know, like whatever. Mm -hmm. I get all that. But like, I just feel like being a groupie doesn't like, (laughs) yeah, he doesn't determine you get like the death penalty. Yeah, I agree. If you could, if you could change it and put him somewhere now, what would you do with him? Um, I would, I would put him, I, I kind of agree with you. I think that life in prison is probably where he should be um because like we said like while he didn't do the murders being there for four of them is a bit excessive so like one i could see like okay it was an accident or something Mm -hmm. but like four shit like so Mm -hmm. i mean i think that life probably without parole but i also want to flip that and say like he was doing good things so smiled a lot he smiles too much. <laughs> he was a smiley prisoner. Like he was just happy to be alive. Oh, no, <laughs> but I just oh my gosh. But I think that life probably without parole is where I would have placed him. 
I understand he was doing well at the end, but there's nothing to prove to me that he would have been that pro-social had he not been in prison. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, because he had nothing better to do with his time, he created all these things. That's great. Well, what if he made parole? You know what I mean? Would he still continue on with all those great things when now you have a life to live? You know, I just, there's nothing that shows me that he was capable and able to do things on the outside that he did on the inside. And honestly, if society was benefiting from him being alive and in prison, keep him there then. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Because I agree, four murders, that's a lot. Like, that's four too many, you know? Pick better friends. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Different group to be a groupie. (laughs) yeah. But yeah, so I think we're in the same boat on this one that he shouldn't have probably gotten the death penalty, but we would put him still in prison for life had it been up to us. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Question number two. Should DeGraffin Reed have been punished further than life in prison with the possibility of parole? No, I don't think he should have been punished further than that. Yeah, I agree. I think it was an appropriate sentence. But it's like the same situation, right? With Skillicorn. So he didn't pull the trigger, but he could have done something to stop it. Just in this scenario, he hadn't been a part of three other murders that, you know, and that was on his side. You know what I mean? And he was young. He was only 17. So he definitely had age and (laughs) thankfully lack of experience on his side. But, I mean, it's essentially the same situation. He was there, but he didn't pull the trigger. And it was only one murder, not three. Right. I think that's the big difference there is that he was he was only there for one instead of three. And then also, I want to point out that, like, <sighs> Nick Lassen had, like, anger problems, right? And, like, a lot of it. And he had a lot of, like, built-up anger. And if a 17-year-old little kid who's kind of a pushover is not going to be able to stop him he just probably would have been another victim. Like if we're being totally honest here, like he wouldn't have been able to stop him, you know? And so I feel like, no, like, yeah, it it was one murder and that's bad enough, but like shit, he kind of learned from it and he just kind of fell off the map with them. Like, so I think that he should not have been punished further than that. Yeah. So do you think it should have been less or do you think that was an appropriate sentence life with the possibility of parole? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I get why they got they gave him life, but oh man. I don't know. It's just hard for me to be like Yeah, you should spend life in prison even though you were a half a mile away and you didn't know what was going on. You know, like granted you were not doing pro-social activities, but you weren't you weren't committing a murder. You didn't even know it was happening. You know, you were, I think they said a half a mile away, like, and it only happened one time. So I. Okay. So I actually think that the life sentence in this particular case is appropriate. And the reason is, is because we have to remember what the charge was. Okay. So it was second degree murder. So what weight does that carry? I think life without the possibility of parole would have been pretty harsh, but life with the possibility of parole allows him to have a punishment, but also have the uh, opportunity to turn his life around while he's in prison, prove to them that he can get out and be pro-social and not fucking murder anybody else. And then he can go on about his business, but he's going to stay supervised for the duration of his life. Unless there's a way to petition to get off of that. But that's what that sentence essentially means. And I think that that's not necessarily bad because he still got the conviction. He's, you know, so that's on his record. He still did the prison time and that's fine. But he was able to prove to a a parole board panel that he was capable of being in the free world and be pro-social and that he was remorseful for his portion, you know. And then we have to remember, too, that he showed them where Drummond's body was. I mean, he, you know, he was cooperative. So I think that 
the conviction, in my opinion, of second degree murder, even though he wasn't a part of it. If you look at the statutes in Missouri and the definition of murder in the second degree, I think that this basically sums that up. You were a part of it. You took a part of it. And honestly, it's one of those things like if you're there, you're it's, you know, just like in California, we've talked about this in previous cases too. If you're present when a murder is convicted, you're just as guilty as the person who pulled the trigger. And luckily he didn't continue on the madness with the other Tweedledee and Tweedle fucking dumb um, with the other two murders. But so I'm I'm glad that he wasn't a part of that, but I'm also glad that he was punished, you know? And obviously I would hope that he is reformed. And I mean, he was young at the time, right? So he had the opportunity to turn his life around. And I hope that he did do that for real and get him out of that drug and crime scene, you know? So I don't know. I understand it sounds heavy, but I think in this case it was appropriate just based on the circumstances, you know? Okay, I only have one more question today. Do you believe that Skillicorn and DeGraffenried truly didn't take part in the murders? Um, yeah, I I don't think that they did. It seems to me like they were just kind of followers. Um and Nick Lassen was like the ringleader and stuff. So I could see how like that whole thing would play out if that was actually the case. That's what it seems like. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that they were a part of it, especially for the Drummond murder. But I do I do wonder a little bit if Skillicorn was involved anymore with the Babcocks murders because there was two of them. And I don't know, I just wonder if even if it was at Niglassen's direction, if Skillicorn was a little bit more involved in that. And of course, because they were serving their time in Missouri and not Arizona, the majority of the information that's received to the media and the public is about the Drummond murder. So we know a lot more about that. And that's all they talk about. You know, I didn't pull the trigger for Mr. Drummond, but they don't say specifically and the Babcocks, you know, they, they really focus on Drummond because that's the case that they're serving the time on in that particular state. So it's hard to say, but I just wonder if maybe he played a little bit more of a role in the Babcock's murders, but I'm just not sure. So I wish we had more investigative notes on that crime scene and the autopsies and all that kind of stuff. But it is disappointing to me that he decided to continue traveling with Nick Lassen and making these fucking stupid decisions after making the realization of what Nick Lassen was capable of based off what he had demonstrated during Mr. Drummond's murder. So he should have jumped off that bandwagon just like Dave Griffinry did, but unfortunately he didn't, which is how he wound up in the ground just the same. So, yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from on that. And that's a good point. I'm just not really convinced if they had a part in it or if they were just like following along for the ride and just happened to be there when they're bestie was killing people i don't know it's hard to say but i'm just not 100 percent convinced that they were a part of it at all i agree though um they probably didn't i'm just wondering if skillicorn played a slightly bigger role in the babcocks murders but obviously we'll never know at this point okay addicts so in review of the discussion questions, these will be posted on our Facebook page. So head over to Facebook, search for Crime Addicts Pod, scroll down past our Amazon link, and stop and use it if you want. But scroll down to episode 30, discussion questions. Can't believe we're 30 episodes in already. And in the comments, let us know what you think. I know there's probably a lot of debate on this case and all that kind of stuff because it does deal with the death penalty, but we are truly interested in your thoughts. So number one, regardless of your belief in the death penalty, should Skillicorn have been executed? Discussion question number two, should De Graffenried have been punished further than life in prison with the possibility of parole? And discussion question number three, 
Do you believe the Skillicorn and DeGraffenried truly didn't take part in any of the murders? We'll post a picture of them on our Facebook, all of our social media, our website, all that kind of stuff. So go check them out because these are truly the three stooges. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode on these three Good Samaritan killers with Nick Lassen going from Young Will Ferrell to Motorcycle Gang Wannabe, Skillicorn forever looking like Captain Hook, and Dave Graffenreid rocking his thin 1990s circle beard goatee with spiky hair. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated. <laughs>